Ryan Kempt. Thanks all for being here. I'm just going to share a little bit about our panelists this evening and about me too. So just so you know, I am a co-founder of a community called Lumisoul. I have a podcast called The Universe is Ours and I'm an energetic guide. So I'm really, really happy to be here to talk about and moderate spirituality and psychedelics. It's like I said, a very a topic very close to my heart. And I'm excited to hear what all of our lovely panelists have to say. So I'll just introduce us if you want to give a little wave when I share your name and bio. So we have Amanda Siebert. Amanda Siebert is an award-winning freelance journalist, best-selling author and podcast host interested in relationships between health and altered states of consciousness. She is the author of two books, The Book of Cannabis, How Marijuana Can Improve Your Life, and Psyched, Seven Cutting-Edge Psychedelics Changing the World, the host of the podcast, and be again uncovered. Gained and uncovered. <laughs> My apologies. Okay, and then we have Daos Forte. He's an accelerated evolution coach, transformational artist, Numa breathwork practitioner, and plant medicine facilitator. He has over 17 years of experience in the immersion study and practice in non-ordinary states of consciousness. Kyra Yoga, earth-based spirituality, body-centered psychotherapeutic methods, art therapy, embodied practices, and trauma-informed facilitation. Amazing. <laughs> okay, and then Lana Rados is a holistic psychotherapist with almost 40 years of clinical and professional experience. Formally trained in clinical psychology, Lana is most notable for her work in trauma and relational therapy. Her rich and intuitive understanding of human psych has enabled her to create a unique and highly effective modality of psychological healing for which she has become renowned and sought after. And then lastly, we have Stephen Gray. Hi, Stephen. Stephen has a traveling spiritual and medicine pathways for over 50 years. He's a writer, educator, conference organizer, speaker, and cannabis ceremony leader. Stephen is the author of editor and editor of three books. You can catch them at the back as well if you'd like to take a peek at them. And then including the popular Cannabis and Spirituality and Explorer's Guide to an Ancient Planet Plant Spirit Ally, and then recently released How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World, Visionary and Indigenous Voices Speak Out. So that's a little bit about our panelists tonight, and I'm just going to take a seat here um, as we begin our Q&A. Just some housekeeping, if you need to use the washrooms, they're right around the corner if you haven't found them, and we'll do a Q&A for any audience questions at 8.20, and then we'll do some social chatting after. There's room for that as well. So the first question we have tonight 
So how do psychedelics influences one's spiritual experience and perception of reality? If anyone would like to go first. I have the microphones. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go. So. Just first I want to add, I noticed that my bio doesn't mention plant medicine at all, so people might wonder why I'm here being a psychologist. I didn't write it, so <laughs> that's, uh, Michael just copied it from some website. My husband and I, my husband Ivan Rados and I, member of Intronaut, a member of Intronaut team, can you hear me now? Okay. Yes, and we hold spirit plant medicine ceremonies here in Vancouver every month and also hold retreats with spirit plant and psychotherapy and all kinds of other modalities. So that's my connection to it, just so that we know. And by the way, sorry, I already forgot the question. Forgive my age. I mean, I've been doing this for 40 years, so obviously I'm quite old. What was the question again? So the question is, how do psychedelics influences one's spiritual experience and perception of reality? Oh, well, I, I, I'd say psychedelic experience is a spiritual experience. Whether we want it or not, from whatever angle we, we, we approach it, whether we, whether we decide to sit with the spirit plant medicine because we are curious and we just want to explore our mind or we want to explore, I don't know, the origin of the universe or we just have a, whether we have a kind of scientific approach to it or whether we have a spiritual approach to it and we want to expand our consciousness, meet our soul. Either way, in my experience, in all these years of practice, my personal and with clients, it's always a spiritual experience. And, and what's, I mean, what does it even mean, spiritual, right? It's from, from the word spirit. It's meeting with your soul, really. It's even the word psychedelics. Psychedelics means literally psyche is soul. Lots of people think psyche means mind, but it doesn't. It's actually soul originally from Greek. And then delics comes from the word of a manifestation, actually, from Greek word for manifestation. So it's really about manifesting one's soul. And that's certainly my personal experience and what I've noticed in our work with clients is that, that what happens, what seems to happen is that the psychedelics or spirit plant medicine, but it's not always plant, it could be synthetic medicine too. We work with both. What seems to happen is that, that somehow the consciousness of the medicine taps into our consciousness, our soul, so to speak, and reunites us with our soul. And the true medicine is our soul, actually. And so the, 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 the psychedelic medicine just connects us with the, with the true medicine. We are the medicine. So that, that's, that's my answer. I think there was two questions there. I'm not sure. No? no? OK, good. Yeah, okay. thank you so much for sharing. Who? Who? Darius? I don't really know how to answer that question, to be honest, because, I mean, we could spend the entire time just talking about that question. Where to begin? I think what I'll say is psychedelics connect us to our essential nature. <clears throat> there is no experience that isn't spiritual, essentially. We are spiritual beings. Everything within this creation is manifest from spirit, and we're learning how to be in right relationship with all of it. The real question for me is what disconnects us from the awareness of that? 
what disconnects us from our essential nature and how do we reconnect to that consciously i think that is what people call the healing journey waking up to our essential nature and psychedelics help us do that and they all do that in different ways so I mean, we can generalize, there's specifics that are unique to each of the psychedelics, but just to generalize, it helps to bring up, like the healing journey for me, is, it, is the bringing up of unresolved material that is largely sourced from the past, things that are unresolved in our psyche, in our body, in our emotional being. It brings those things to the surface in their original intensity so that it can be processed and discharged out of our system. Through that process, our capacity for feeling, for experiencing both intensity and subtlety increases while we also have novel insight, which, to be honest, oftentimes feels like something we already knew, you know? Like insight will come through and it's like, wow, I already knew that, but I forgot it. That's because we're reconnecting to something that's part of our essential nature that was previously hidden from our awareness. There's lots of reasons why that happens, but I think that's essentially why psychedelics are considered to be spiritual aids, because they help to facilitate a healing process that reconnects us to who and what we really are. And it also wakes us up to the different dimensions of reality that we're connected to that are normally hidden from our conscious awareness. Yeah, I'll leave it there for now. Saying thanks so much. Well, that probably covers it. <laughs> so what could I add? I don't know. Okay, here's just a totally different way, not a totally different way, another angle on, on thinking about what psychedelics do. So first of all, you may know this, whatever, in case you don't, they're very simpatico with our brain chemistry, right? They're in general, the, you know, the true psychedelics, you know, the psilocybins and, and the ayahuasca and the peyote and the San Pedro cactus and cannabis, I'll put in there too, and even LSD and some others are essentially non-toxic. Non There's a term called LD50. It's a dosage of a medicine at which 50% of the people will die. And the LD50 of these substances with some exceptions, MDMA can have an LD50, but in general, they, they don't, you know. You know, you have to take so much, oh, sorry about that. Forgot to turn the phone off. I usually tell other people to turn the damn things off, yeah. Oh, that's my buddy Mark, co-organizer of the Spirit Plant Medicine Conference. That's a reminder to come to the Spirit Plant Medicine Conference, you know. Yeah. Anyway, so these things, you know, they, they're very simpatico with us, you know. It's like psychedelics are us or something like that. They're non-toxic, and it's very hard to OD on them in the physiological sense. So then the other thing that, that maybe is a slightly different way of thinking about these things is that, you know, from, say, the Buddhist perspective or something like that, we are all encased in what they would call ego, which is the confused mind of trying to figure this world out based on you know, thinking about it, like collecting a whole bunch of ideas and concepts and beliefs about what's true or false or right or wrong or good or bad or all those kind of things. But it's all a package of ideas that lives in conceptual part, 
part of ourselves and in, in our brains, right? So we're, we're sort of thickly encrusted in general that way. And so, so how, how does that get opened up or how does that sort of shell get cracked? Well, you could sit meditation for your whole life and that's probably a good idea anyway. But then the psychedelics come along and shock the monkey, as it were, you know? And so what I'd like to add about that is that I, I, this could be woo-woo, I don't know, I, I believe it, I think other people believe it too, that we have reached a nexus point on this planet and that there's no time for just meditating for 60 years or just doing therapy for 60 years. The psychedelics will, you know, it's, it's a hard path in some ways because you've got to do the integration work, but they will, they will reliably, for the most part, in the right circumstances, crack the shell open and in, in, reintroduce us to what these people have been saying about that it's real, you know, that's the real. You know, these are reality medicines, right? I don't, I don't think of them as drugs. I think of them as reality medicines. I could go on a long time, but I think I'll let Diane ask another question. Re, Ryan, sorry, Ryan? It's Ryan. Ryan, yeah. ask another question. <laughs> I'll hand it over oh, to Amanda yeah. first, but thank you so much for your answer. Thank you. I can speak to this in sort of a, a more practical sense, I guess. How many people in this room were raised religious? Have a religious upbringing? Yeah, quite a few people. So I was raised Mennonite, very, very structured, very like lots of rules, lots of rules. And what psychedelics enabled me to do was sort of to deconstruct my understanding of and relationship to spirituality and rebuild that in a way that I actually identified with my whole life and didn't know it, you know. And so, yeah, I would say the, the, the fact that we were having this discussion about psychedelics and spirituality, like this sort of, yeah, this is a subject that I think we need to be talking about more, more, more often and more openly, I think, especially when it comes to the psychedelic framework where we're talking a lot about therapy and one-on-one -on -one spaces and, and, and situations. I think this precise sort of like community gathering speaks a lot to, yeah, the power, the spiritual power of psychedelics. I won't say too much on the subject. I think my co-panelists have already done a great job, but yeah, from a personal perspective, really just deconstructing all the bullshit <laughs> that I grew up with and being able to rebuild that relationship in a, in a healthy way. Amazing, thank you. So yoga and, and meditation have been known to be practices that allow us to go inward and be more connected with ourselves and reality. In what ways can psychedelic substances be used as a tool for explaining and deepening one's spiritual practice like those? I'll start again. <laughs> I got a microphone, yes. Am I holding it properly now? Seems that it was too far initially. Well, as Stephen said something interesting, he said, you know, we could meditate for the entire life, or we could take psychedelics. It's kind of a shortcut, but not in a lazy way. It's not anyone who thinks that's a lazy or easy way hasn't done any real work with psychedelics, because it, it can be very challenging. But who has the time? You know, somebody has to pay the bills as well, so you can't sit and meditate living in this society. I, per, I can speak from a personal experience, really. 
And also I agree with what they said, something also really cool about the spiritual experiences. I, I'm going to re rephrase this. I think you said something about that. For you, spiritual experiences about going inside, digging deep into the unconscious, unresolved wounds and, and issues and bringing them. And that's healing. You said healing. But to me, that's spiritual experience too. It's not just about communing with the Divine Mother or feeling the sense of unity, the oneness with everything, which is, by the way, what we often do get as a result of sitting with psychedelics. But it's more importantly, and I think, I think the, the, what you mentioned there is going inside and digging deep into the, the unthought known, as you said, the, the, the unknown that we knew before, the unthought known, and all the all the wounds that are sitting in the deep, dark cellar of our psyche that we are not aware of, that's actually that consists of, uh, largely our driving force in this life that informs our beliefs, our emotions, how we, how we present to ourselves and to the world. I think that's actually essentially a spiritual experience and prerequisite for the ultimate spiritual experiences, which for me is that, that kind of sense of oneness and transcendence of self and dissolving into the unity of everything. Frankly, I don't even remember what the question was anymore, but that's okay. <laughs> I, I'll just share my first journey with psychedelics. And, and I, I come from the clinical psychology background, and unlike Amanda, I come from the, the opposite background, I was raised in a communist regime by atheist parents. And anyone who spoke spiritual language, I looked down upon them. I thought they were dumb. I really did not respect them. I, I, I thought of myself as an academic, as an intellectual, and everything else was just bullshit. Anyway, here I am now actually doing shamanic work with people and sometimes thinking, oh my God, you know, if my aunts and uncles saw me. Okay, I hope they're not on social media. So, and about 20 odd years ago, I was about to leave my husband because we had a beautiful, loving relationship when we were good, but when we were not, we were very unconscious. And those, you know, the, those deep wounds, the demons from inside operated in our relationship. And then we would go deep into the, you know, just very immature stuff. And, and I thought he was the main problem because he was very reactive. And I was already kind of, uh, well-established psychologist, and I thought I was doing everything by the book. I was being really conscious. And anyway, when I decided to leave him, he invited me to go to an ayahuasca session with him. And at that point, I kept saying no before to psychedelics. No, 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 that's not for me. At that point, I was like, okay, you know, let's do this. Let's try this. And guess what happened? Immediately, the medicine showed me what what my contribution to our issue was, something I would have never become aware of without the psychedelics. It literally showed me there was the two of us sitting in front of the fireplace arguing, and I was having this slightly superior smirk on my face, very, very almost undetectable. 
and I could see how that triggered him, and he became the asshole. I set him up to be the asshole. It was me, I was the asshole. He was just reacting to what I was setting him up. There's no way I would have ever seen that. In, in years and years of therapy, you know, I would have never, nobody would have ever brought me to that point. And that's how I got converted instantly. So. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Thank you. So how about this for a slightly different way of, I think at least half of that question was about how psychedelics can benefit your spiritual practice. Yeah. yeah. So how about if, how about if you think of that there, there maybe there's only one spiritual practice and that's just nowness or presence, right? So you can do more specific things, right? You can sit down on a cushion and pay attention to your breath. You can do yoga and other things like that. But really, there's just nowness, right? And <clears throat> but we're we're all to varying degrees afraid of that, of because there's an in Buddhism they call it shunyata or emptiness, and it's very difficult because we create from the moment we're born more or less, and many people would say for bringing in from past lives as well, we create this kind of package of identification, of our identity, right? And the, the longer we live, the more we become attached, like deeply attached, addicted, you might even say, to that identity. So it's very difficult to let go of that identity. And it interferes with that sort of one true spiritual practice. It certainly interferes with the meditation I was taught, which in Sanskrit, is, the word is shamatha, which means dwelling in peace. And it's just simply sitting down watching the breath without putting too much attention on it or too intense intention on it, watching thoughts come up, not judging them and letting them go because you keep trying to encourage yourself to sort of relax into that present state, see the stuff that comes up is just stuff that comes up, etc. So where the psychedelics potentially come into that is the healing work that these people are talking about hopefully resolves some of the reasons why we are afraid of that surrendering, of that relaxing into the present state, right? So that's my answer for one way of talking about how psychedelics can help those, pra those other practices. They can, can make it easier for us to be present for them and for everything else, including washing the dishes, okay? <laughs> I feel like I just want to take a step back and, and frame what we're talking about here. These, I'm finding these questions to be kind of challenging because they're, they're general and they're using certain words that are very well known, but we don't really know what we're talking about. Like, what is a spiritual practice? What do you consider to be a spiritual practice and why would psychedelics elevate that unless we identify what those things are? What are we even talking about? And this kind of connects to what I was sharing from the first question. Everything is spiritual. Our whole concept of spirituality being wrapped up with dogmatic religion and other associations is so fundamentally distorted that we're disconnected from our essential nature and how to be in right relationship with the rest of creation as different expressions of universal intelligence. Every single one of you is a divine being with choice, 
that is interacting with an intelligent universe that co-creates the next unfolding of what is present within the reality of this matrix. All of us are co-creating reality together all the time. Part of the challenge is that we don't know how to participate in a way that actually enlivens us and other people in a trajectory that is of our choosing. So much of our behavior, our thoughts, our emotional reactions are being dictated from the past, which is unresolved material that is largely resolving in unconscious spaces. Nobody taught us how to navigate our emotions. We don't learn this in school. I mean, I don't know about you guys, I didn't learn how to meditate in school, learning how to interact with other people in healthy ways, like conflict resolution, that wasn't taught to me in school. I was given information that I was told I needed to regurgitate with as much accuracy as possible in order to find value in this society. I was trained to be productive. I wasn't trained how to connect with myself and other people and the living world in a meaningful way and to participate in the co-creative unfolding of life itself. Everything is spiritual. So for me, that question means, how can psychedelics elevate your connection to and participation with the rest of life? So to answer that question, I'll just tell a little story about my own journey. A lot of my background is actually connected to yoga. I was initiated into Kriya Yoga back in 2009 through the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda, who has an organization called Self-Realization Fellowship. I had this incredibly profound, life-changing spiritual experience when I was backpacking in Guatemala that just made me obsessed with the quest for enlightenment. My values completely flipped upside down. I sold everything that I owned. I left my job in financial services. I left my relationship. I sold all my possessions, and I wanted to move to India. Why? I don't know. That's where you go when you're looking for something spiritual. So that was my plan. I didn't know what I was looking for. I just knew that I needed some kind of guidance. I freaked the fuck out because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't even know what I was looking for, so I didn't go to India. That's when I found the teachings of Yogananda at a little chapel like 10 minutes from my house. Immediate recognition, this is what I've been looking for. I wanted to go be a monk. I was 20 years old. So I got to the ashram. The monks hear me. <laughs> pleading to join and they're like why don't you wait a year and uh, go get a little bit more life experience before you take lifelong vows of celibacy and obedience <laughs> I was like no I'm ready they were very wise I came back to Canada got into a relationship and that kind of changed the trajectory of my life I was working with psychedelics periodically over my 20s but I was just searching. I did a lot of meditation, a lot of pranayama, a lot of interiorized practices. And it became very difficult to interact with the world because part of the yogic teachings is this is maya. You know, sensory experience is taking you away from your soul. You know, a lot of Kriya Yoga is about reversing the trajectory of life force to reconnect to the source point. Christ consciousness is another way of saying that, universal intelligence. But it's extremely interiorized, and so I became very, very disconnected from the world and found it challenging to interact. So from that place, the question would have been, well, how would psychedelics elevate my 
meditative practice. The challenge was the meditative practice was also serving partially as a coping mechanism for my unwillingness and inability to connect with the rest of the world. So a thing that opened that up for me was the indigenous traditions, earth-based practices, specifically the Blackfoot tradition down in southern Alberta. I've been supporting a, a Sundance down there held by Keith Chiefman since 2012, just as a supporter, as a firekeeper, and as a drummer. But the main thing that impacted me from those traditions is it's all about relationship. How are you in relationship to the earth, to the sky, to the water, to the animals, to each other, to yourself? And identifying how you are out of right relationship and learning how to come back into right relationship as a way of living. There's no difference for them from ceremony and the rest of life. It's all integrated. And you find this with indi indigenous traditions that are working with psychedelics. The psychedelic experience is not removed from the way that they're living. It's woven into their culture. It's a part of their community. For me, the question itself is kind of distorted because one of the things that Yogananda said, I'm going to paraphrase the quote because I can't remember exa it exactly. If your concept of God does not translate directly into your day-to-day -day life, that concept is meaningless. If it has no bearing in how you navigate your life, what is the point of that? So as I began to engage more in the world and to come out of myself, the medicine started bringing up a lot of unresolved shit that was preventing me from fully engaging, my fear of other people, my unresolved emotional experiences, my, my concern of how, what, how my image was getting projected, what other people are gonna think of me if I'm gonna be successful, and all of these things started coming up and it was wrapped around a lot of really challenging emotion. That is the healing process of resolving material from the past, and we have all these defense mechanisms around those things to keep them contained, so when they come up, they're really, really intense, but as they're resolved, there's a sense of freedom, openness, connection with yourself and the rest of life. And as that started happening, the, the messages I was receiving from the medicine became increasingly simple. So I would go in and sit with, has anyone heard of 5-MeO-DMT? So that is an extremely strong psychedelic. <clears throat> when I was first working with that medicine, I was getting blasted into these esoteric spaces that was answering all of my questions about the nature of self and reality. And then as time went on, I would take the medicine and it would connect me with my body and it would give me insight of how I was out of right relationship with certain people in my life. And this happened over and over and over and over again. I wasn't getting these big metaphysical revelations. It's like, you aren't moving your body enough, and you're not in integrity in your relationships. Go clean that up. That is a spiritual movement. Learning how to come into right relationship with myself and other people, because I am an expression of divinity within this realm. As I come into integrity within myself, that vibrational frequency, that state of consciousness ripples out and affects everything else that I come into contact with in my sphere of influence, which is a spiritual experience. So how do psychedelics enhance your spiritual practice? Because it connects you to yourself in a heightened way, and it helps you come into right relationship with yourself and other people. 
Every experience is a spiritual experience. I really want to hammer that home. There is no difference between the work that you're doing in psychedelic spaces and the work that you're doing in every other area of your life. It's just enhancing a process that is always taking place. I don't have anything to add to that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah thank you so much for... Yeah, thank you so much for breaking that down, too, and sharing your stories. The other, you mentioned different types of medicine so far. And so with a spiritual lens, how do, you, how do some of the psychedelics differ from each other in their effects and best uses for them? And best uses for them. I, I can speak a little bit to this. I, I hesitate to put psychedelics, specific psychedelics, in boxes. I think I've, you know, heard from people that psilocybin is great for X and MDMA is great for whatever. I think, number one, it comes down to what resonates with you. Can you repeat the question one more time just so that I know him? Yeah, of course. Uh, so with the spiritual lens, how do some of the psychedelics differ mm -hmm. from each other in their effects and best uses? Yeah, I think the answer to this question really depends on the individual. So what, what your intention is, the kind of work that you're trying to do, how comfortable you are with psychedelics, your experience level. I would definitely not suggest a first-timer to go and do a boga in Gabon, you know? So from, from that perspective, I would say that certain medicines are definitely better suited to, to certain environments, certain, you know, where you're at in your life. I would say, given what we know about these medicines, I think psilocybin and MDMA are medicines we hear a lot about right now, psilocybin for the sort of mental health perspective. But when we look at the spiritual side of things, I think these two medicines are really some of the more approachable, yeah, some of the more approachable medicines based on availability. I would like to open this question to Lana, though, because you have more firsthand experience I kind of just have practical knowledge and <laughs> book, book learning stuff. So I would really like to hear from some folks about, about yeah, what you've experienced. Okay, putting me on the spot here. It's okay. I actually, I don't know, I'll, I'll do my best to answer this question, but I thought you and Stephen are the researchers here and the erudites on the subject. But I can speak from my experience, certainly. We work with many different medicines, not iboga and not ayahuasca, but just about everything else, practically. And what... What we noticed, first of all, I, I don't know how this is going to come across, but really how we decide in, in private ceremonies, how we decide what medicine to give is on the basis of intuition. And I, I, I'm sorry if that doesn't sit well with some people, but that's, that's, that's it, really. And I think at some point, when, we, when we've been engaged in certain practices and certain work, especially professionally, we develop intuition anyway, whether we, whether we have engaged in spiritual practices or not. It just becomes kind of a hidden knowledge, you know? It's kind of combination of the knowledge of experience of also oh, just reconnecting with, our, with the source, with our soul, which is like uh, has access to the field, universal field of information. So I'm just trying to kind of define here what it means, for, what intuition means to me, but I guess everyone has their own definition of it. But, and as I said already, intuition is also based on knowledge and experience. So it's not just coming from some higher ethereal source. 
And what we noticed it is that depending on the person's background, on the where, as you said, Amanda, where the person is in their lives, you know, if they've experienced recent trauma, like somebody had just talked here today about their recent experience, whether what they want also, what the intent is, whether they're on some medications, all of those factors play a part in deciding what medicine is the best for that person, really. I mean, there's no, I, I, in my opinion, there's no a textbook as to, as you said, it's a bit like homeopathy, you know? It's like you work with the person. It's not like pharmaceutical approach where this is for this and this is for eye, this is for whatever, ear infection. It it's, doesn't work like that. And that would be a terrible, terribly mechanical and restricted model and it would go against what the, this medicine's about. Yeah, you wanted to say something? Yes. Really, really quickly on the note of certain using certain medicines for certain practices. That's not to say that some medicines are not associated with certain practices. So, for for example, iboga is commonly used among the Bwiti to connect with our ancestors, to diagnose illness and things like that. So, on a spiritual level, I think that that certain plants have been used in particular ways, but I. I don't know that anyone can sit up here and be like, oh, you know, if you're dealing with this particular thing, you should use this medicine. Yeah. <laughs> I actually like what you said because it's interestingly enough, for me, what connected me most deeply with my ancestors and with the inner healer was 3MMC, which is totally the newest kind of designer psychedelic, which I never thought, I never thought I would even work with synthetics because I'm like the earth mama, right? But hey, I mean, whoa, it totally launched me into a full shamanic mode, even fuller than ayahuasca did years ago. And all the ancestors came and all my past lives as a Buddhist monk and all of that, who would have thought? So again, you know, it just illustrates that there is no direct answer to that, in my opinion. And anyway, guys? Yeah, Stephen? Hmm. Well, in, in terms of what I was saying a little while ago, to the, I think it was the first question, <clears throat> since these medicines are quite simpatico with the brain chemistry and you might say our spirits altogether, maybe what's more important in terms of you know, differences between the medicines, although there are some distinct differences between some and others, like Iboga that, that Amanda mentioned a minute, a minute ago, is, seems to be quite different. I've, I've done a couple of in-depth Iboga ceremonies, and it's kind of like it takes you almost into the earth or something, you know? <laughs> and it's very tricky, too, in my experience and many others. I actually was an assistant at a couple of dozen Iwaska retreats, or pardon me, Iboga retreats. And a lot of times in the sharing session on the Sunday, people would go, no idea what happened, right? It's, it's a very, in my experience, a very tricky medicine that way because it shows you yourself, but if you don't recognize that, if like if you don't have a, a hook of a way to recognize that, you might not even realize that, that it's showing you yourself, you know, it's showing you something central about yourself. But maybe more important than even between, say, ayahuasca and psilocybin and San Pedro cactus and a couple of others is the actual situation that you're doing those medicines in because they can all do that as we're I think talking about that right they can all open things up they can all shock the monkey they can all show us they can all function as truth serums in that way so having a safe container 
having hopefully good guidance, although you know, I know people can do psilocybin mushrooms alone. Not everyone, but a lot of people can. Fine, if that's your preference. But I think for most people, having good guidance of some kind or another, whether it be a sitter, a guide, a therapist, or a ceremony leader, might be even more important. And then beyond that, maybe it's like, you know, people say, well, this medicine calls to me, and this one doesn't, right? You know, it's like, it's like a sort of a metaphorical Ouija board, you know? Where is it going? Oh, ayahuasca for me, you know? And while I'm at it, <coughs> I do want to put a word in for cannabis because it often gets left out of the conversation, you know, when we're talking about psychedelics. You know, partly because it seems to be gentler and partly because <coughs> it's not technically or biochemically listed as a psychedelic because it doesn't act on the 5-HT2A, B, and C receptor system. But some of these other ones don't do that either. But cannabis, in some ways, I won't go on about this at, at length, you know, but I'll say it as quick as I can. In some ways, cannabis might, this is arguable, I'm sure, but it might be the most, almost the best medicine for the species. And the reason for that is because it's, it's user-friendly, it's the people's plant, it's the people's psychedelic, it's widely available anywhere. You can do it alone, safely, except in a few, you know, in some situations or some people, I guess. You can titrate the dosage, you know, safely yourself. You know what they say, start low and start, start low and go, start, you know, go slow and start low and go slow. Yeah, right, something like that, yeah. So uh, when it comes to cannabis, I like to say the optimal dose for working with cannabis as a spiritual medicine is the dosage that you can both want to and can handle. And what can handle means is the stronger it gets, cannabis is actually an ego dissolver, right? And that's threatening for most of us to one degree or another. And it really, Deus and I were talking before this started about how it has a somatic or a, a body energy to it. And so it's holistic in that sense. It's, gr it's grounded, grounding in that way because it, it, the healing happens you know, holistically at multiple levels, the mind and the body together. So a couple of the people that contributed to my cannabis, cannabis and spirituality book called it the sacrament of peace for the universal religion of the future. This is non-hierarchical, non-dogmatic, non-exclusive. You don't need to pay for a membership, <laughs> you know, and it's totally experience-based. You don't have to have anyone teaching you. And maybe that's the biggest issue of the whole thing, is that we, from the Buddhist perspective, we all are Buddha. We all are awake already. We just don't know it yet. And so we all are ultimately, this is a, like a core Buddhist teaching that was taught to me, is that eventually, the phenomenal world becomes the guru, right? So the psychedelics just help that along, one would hope. I don't think I'm the best person to answer this question because even though I have a lot of personal experience with different medicines, I wouldn't consider myself an authority in any of them, but I, I will just reflect that, again, I kind of take issue with the question itself. And this isn't Ryan's fault. She didn't come up with these questions. But the, the whole premise for the question is coming from like a diagnostic medical model, 
right? Like how do we identify very specific causative forces so that we can offer a prescription? You know, a lot of the studies on psychedelics are about reducing the amount of factors so that they can gauge what has an effect on what. And to be honest, it doesn't work with psychedelics. They have no fucking clue what's going on or what's causing what. They're, but they're trying to figure it all out so that they can diagnose things and prescribe something. And then they're trying to isolate specific substances within the psychedelics so that they can get them <sighs> copywritten. No, not copywritten. What's the word? Patented. Anyway, <clears throat> the diagnostic approach to medicine, in my opinion, is not applicable to psychedelics. I would agree with what Lana was saying, that it has a lot to do with the personal relationship between the facilitator and the participant, as well as your relationship with the individu individual medicines, because they're going to do different things for different people, and that's not going to change. I mean, you'll have different experiences with the same medicine, working with it multiple times. You're not going to have a prescribed experience. That's not how these substances work. So again, being in right relationship with your facilitator and building a relationship with the different forms of medicine is the best way to move forward with that, in my opinion. Thank you all for your input. And, uh, and so the next question I have is something along the lines of commonalities of psychedelics that you see within different types. But I'll, I'll skip that one. And I have a question that, you know, <laughs> many, so many people do actually, I have heard of many people reporting that they see similar entities when having, you know, a spiritual experience or if it's hallucinations, whatever it may be. And the question here is, do you believe that these visualizations of spiritual entities are are of our of our sorry <laughs> entities are a reflection of our own consciousness or do you believe that they're they're existing externally from ourselves? And that our maybe our human eye can't see them. Both Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, both. Yeah. But I was told once, okay, I'll I'll tell the story this time. First time I ever did ayahuasca. It was at a I'm gonna stand up for a minute, sorry, so that I keep feeling like there's a bunch of people I can't see back there. Hello back there, you know. <laughs> okay, now I can sit down. Anyway, it was in nineteen ninety two and uh, I met a guy at a conference that said there was a fellow named Alan Shoemaker coming up from Peru who'd been trained as an ayahuascaro and he was doing a weekend or two nights of ceremonies, ayahuasca ceremonies in but an hour outside of Seattle. So I went, and the, the first one was pretty mild. That was just sort of for him to find out how strong that brew was, because he'd just made it up day before or whatever. And then the second night was the sort of the rocket. And he said, Alan said to us at the beginning, he said, if you're having a problem in any way, just come up here. And he had a mattress out. It was in a yurt, you know. And he just lay down like everybody else. He didn't sit up like a lot of these guys do. He just lay down like everybody else. And he put this mattress out. And so this thing came on like a fucking freight train. And it was like somebody had just opened a door and everything that ever existed all came out at once. And it overwhelmed me and scared the shit out of me. And then I remembered, oh, Alan said, you, you know, you could come up here and he would help. And he had this thing 
called a shakapa. It's like a, uh, a, a leaf shaker thing that, uh, oh, I'm trying to keep this story short, but it's getting problematic to do this. Because this leaf, Alan told us, was found all over the Amazon by people who never met each other, the same leaf, and used for healing and clearing and cleaning. And he said, Someti sometimes you could, after you've you know, shaken it around, the person, they're often singing the song, the Icaros, at the same time, and then you pull it away. Sometimes you can actually even see black balls of toxin along the beams of light that this thing pulls out, you know, or that has coming out of it. Anyway, so I was so freaked out and so shaky that I looked across the yurt and I thought, I can't walk over there, so I'm going to crawl over. So I crawled over and tapped him on the foot and he said, Alan, you said, uh, you know, if you're having trouble, you could come over. And so he said, oh yeah, no problem, lie down there. And he got his shakap out and he sort of shook it around my head and he sang an ikaro. And then he sat me up and he said, you know, when you're feeling like that, it's just your ego hanging on. He said, you have to trust the medicine, right? And I said, oh, okay. I didn't feel any different at that moment. I didn't feel at all different. I still felt really shaky. So I looked back across the yurt to my spot and I realized that I wasn't going to be able to walk, so I crawled again. But I got about six feet from my, from my mattress, and, you know, we're talking about are these spirits real or are they sort of, I don't know, some part of your own consciousness. I don't really know, but what I do know, and I know this happened, there was no doubt about it, and nothing like it has ever happened before or since like that. I became a jungle cat, or it took me over. It just took me over completely. And I went in no time from being shaky like this and like, oh, fuck, you know, to totally relaxed, totally graceful, and all of a sudden joyful. And it only stayed with me for one minute or two minutes, dropped me off at the cushion and left. And, but then the rest of the night, I just felt in this state of total joy the whole rest of the night. And so that was real, I think. <laughs> and then for the rest of that night, like another three hours, I felt presences up above. And I say presences because it felt like, you know, a group or something. You know, it didn't feel like one person. And I've had other experiences with ayahuasca that I felt presences that didn't seem like an individual. And they kept, I, I started communicating with them. And it wasn't like an auditory hallucination. It was just telepathic. And, you know, I'd ask a question and I'd get an answer. And finally, they realized I was asking too many questions and they just said, whatever. <laughs> and then the next question, they didn't even answer. It's like, okay, now you got enough there, kid, work with it. But I felt this incredible energy and it felt like royalty to me, you know? And, and things were happening like when the energy got really strong, everybody in the room would start shifting and moving, and you could hear all the sleeping bags, you know, the, the, the nylon, you know, stuff. And in the morning, I said to Alan, I said, did you notice that, like about every half hour, everybody started shifting, and at those moments, the medicine got way stronger? And he said, well, not really. But the thing was, he got up and sang an ikaro every time that happened. He said, I just feel the energies, and I get up and I sing an ikaro. And I said, so what was that? This was in the morning. I said, what was that? And he said, ha ha, that's for you to figure out. <laughs> hmm. Has anyone heard of IFS, internal family systems? Okay, great. So I think that's a really great analogy for this question, actually. So those of you who are unfamiliar with internal family systems, 
you have different aspects of yourself that kind of take over the system depending on the circumstances that you're faced with. They're most noticeable when you get triggered. <clears throat> There's a certain part of you that kind of takes over and behaves in patterned ways. And you can recognize the patterns if you're able to look at how you feel and then how you behave. So internal family systems gives you the opportunity to create a dialogue with that aspect of yourself. So who are you? Because this part of you has its own intelligence. It is participating in your thoughts, in your feelings, in your behavior, and yet it is a part of a greater holistic identity. So you can have direct conversations with this aspect of you, and you're listening to the responses. You're not generating them from your own mind. You're asking a question to this aspect. It is responding in a way that you can understand. <clears throat> so it's not as though this aspect exists outside of you. It is a part of you, and yet it has its own recognizable features, personality, you could even say. And so part of internal family systems is actually integrating all of your parts so that they are working with each other instead of fighting against each other. One of the interesting pieces about internal family systems is that all of those aspects of you have your highest well-being in mind. They're just behaving in ways that they've learned in order to protect you or support you based on the kind of programming they've received throughout your development. So I think this is a really great analogy for the beings and entities and forces that we might experience in psychedelic spaces, are they outside of you? Potentially. And maybe they're also a part of you. I think it just depends on who you consider yourself to be. The same could be said about how we relate to one another. Has anyone heard of the law of one or the raw material? Raise your hand if you've heard of that. That's a really interesting, very deep, very profound body of channeled work. And without going too deep into it, Ra, which is this being from what they describe as the sixth density, we're currently inhabiting the third density, they refer to themselves as a social memory complex. And they try to describe what that is, but they don't really have the language for it. But essentially, they're a collective consciousness. So one of the things that they speak about in that body of work is that humanity is actually moving in that direction. The recognition that each one of us has a unique way of perceiving and experiencing and contributing to the rest of reality, and yet we are all unified in one identity. And both of those things exist simultaneously. They're not contradictory. So that paradox is very confusing to the mind, but this is what we're growing into. We are each unique individuals, and we are one. And both of those things can exist simultaneously. I think that's a really good analogy for experiencing entities in these psychedelic spaces, for me, anyway. Thank you, I love the IFS, like relating that, yeah, that's, that's brilliant. One thing I can speak to on this subject, for my book I interviewed Dr. Rick Strassman, who's seen or read or watched The Spirit Molecule, a few of you probably, yeah, and so I won't answer the question on his behalf, but I'll, I'll relay two things that he shared with me when I was asking him about his research. So w after the you know, psychedelic, the, the first iteration of psychedelic study happened, he was basically the first scientific researcher to, to revisit this body of work in the 90s. And he studied individuals by giving them 
a lot of DMT. They were under pretty, pretty heavy doses of DMT. And something that he observed in the participants was that, one, that, that the things that people were experiencing were not from outside of what was already within them. So one thing that he asked, or he, he said to me, was that psychedelics are not going to put something in your brain that isn't already there. So I'll leave you with that. And the second thing that he said to me was that when he asked these participants of the study what they saw and what they experienced, the most common thing that they said, I think there were about 90 participants in the study, and all of them said that what they saw was realer than real. It was realer than what they could experience right now in the 3D. So yeah, to, to know that that's in the literature scientifically really just echoes a lot of what's been said here that like, yes, yes, they're real and yes, they're also a part of a part of you, yeah. <laughs> we often get asked that question by clients. They emerge out of a challenging session looking like they've just been cleansed of everything. They're radiating, they're light, they're open-hearted, they're blissful. And they say, like for example, I'll just I'll just, I'm just thinking of one specific man who came to the ceremony depressed. He told us about 30 years of depression, everything, living, like barely living, and emerged feeling so amazing. And he told us about these amazing experiences and what he saw or whom he saw and whom he communed with and how, how beautiful and blissful that was. And he said, my life will never be the same again. And then he looks, turns around, he said, but was this, any of this real? And we all laughed. Okay, and I said to him, so what does it matter? Are you better off now? Like, why are you questioning that now? Do you want your previous reality to be real, more real? What is real anyway? How do you know that all of this is not just a holographic projection? I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't mean to be that kind of quasi-philosophical asshole, but it's true, right? What, is, what does it matter? What you experienced profoundly healed you and changed you, and that's what's real to me. And, and another illustration, personal vignette, in my first shamanic awakening, which was the most challenging experience of my life, and I've been through some very challenging experiences personally, like very, very, but that was like those couple of hours was so hard. I was literally in hell and tortured. And my intent was, please show me how to bring more love and light into the world, and boom. And I'm gonna tell you this one more thing, actually. That was the fourth night of Yahe. And the previous night, I was just in celestial realms, and she, she showed me my origin, my pure soul. It was beautiful, blissful. And that was it. And I thought, eh, I'm, I'm just going to go to support others. I don't need anything else. And the shaman was talking for about an hour. It was dark, and I dozed off. All of a sudden, I bolted to throw up, and I realized I was high. I was under the medicine. And I thought, as I was throwing up, I was thinking, I don't remember drinking the medicine. When did this happen? I open my eyes and I see they're bringing it into the room. It hit me the moment it entered the room. Now that's very woo-woo as you said, but that's, that's what happened. I was already under the medicine. So the moment I actually took a drink, immediately took me to hell with my beautiful intent. It was so horrible and so, uh, it's beyond, there's, it's, there's no words to explain that experience. 
and all of a sudden, I hear all the shamans around me. They're all singing around me, Icarus, and I'm singing with them, and I'm thinking, okay, I am fucked. They all came to me, and it's a big, big retreat, about 90 people. There's 15 shamans, and I think, out of 90 people, they came to me. That means I'm really in trouble. Oh, my God. And later, I was told they, were, they did not come to me. They, they were not the shamans from this realm. But what I found myself and heard myself doing was singing Icarus in a language that I don't know, performing rituals and healing myself. And I emerged out of it. And I was thinking, who is this? What is this happening? What's happening to me? Who is this? So was that re where did that come from? How can that not be real? I did not train in that in this life. I did not see or hear anyone do that in this life. It came from somewhere. Whether it came from my past life or whether it came from some other realm, from some parallel universe, I was definitely helped and I was definitely initiated. And ever since then, even when I take micro, even without the medicine, I can journey just by meditating. I have a full several hours of psychedelic journey. It happened to me spontaneously. I remember telling you that the night before you came to our ceremony, you and Aga, that night I had a full journey without any medicine. And so what is real? I don't even ask that question anymore, honestly. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I feel like there's one more thing that really should be said about this issue of the independent existence of, of entities. Because regardless of whether it's some you know, projected version of oneself or not, I think, it's, I think it's an important concern for a lot of people who take psychedelics. For example, I had a Buddhist, or I, I knew a Buddhist teacher one time from Tibet who said, and he was one of the sort of you know, highest or whatever in the hierarchy of, of teachers. His name was Tai Situ Rinpoche. And <clears throat> he told us one time that uh, there are 11 different realms all around us all the time of beings that we can't necessarily see. And a lot of them are, they're, they're the full range, you know, from enlightened beings to demonic or disturbed beings. You know, like in the Santo Daime, for example, they have these ceremonies called illumination ceremonies. And they actually have a set of hymns to invite disturbed souls in for a healing. And I was sitting there one, the first time I ever did one of their ceremonies, th there was this guy sitting two rows in front of me who'd been sitting there for several hours, totally calm and focused and doing you know, all the stuff, you know? And then all of a sudden he started going like this, you know, and he like crumpled up and fell on the floor shrieking. And then like five or six other people around the room started doing this. I, I thought I was in an insane asylum. But then the uh, shaman or the whatever they call them, the maestra, <laughs> came over and gave him a little wee bit of medicine, which was supposedly for this disturbed spirit, and sang a, a song. And like five minutes later, he's up on the chair again. But that's just one example of the kind of what would, you know, regardless of how you label it, whether it's an extension of yourself or not, I think it's really important to recognize that possibility. And I could talk about it in a lot of different ways, but I want to give you one more example. I, I, a fellow that I know who's like a healer and a psychic and things like that told me a story about five women that he knew that went to Machu Picchu. And he said they were all really strong, self-contained, like wise, you know, together, we used to say, women. 
but they took a psychedelic, I don't remember if he said which one it was, up at Machu Picchu, like without a shaman or anything. The five of them just all took this psychedelic, and she said, and he said that every one of those women came back to the States totally messed up, totally haunted, and they took a lot of work. They did exorcism type things and shamanic healing kind of things, and it took a lot of work to get them back to themselves. So I'm just saying that as a kind of a scare story, like, be aware, please, that there, there are beings of all kinds. And what we're doing, in a sense, when we take the psychedelics is we're, we're softening the aura or the barrier that we normally live behind and opening ourselves up to what could be, as Terence McKenna once called, the angel and demon-haunted realms, right? So I just wanted to put that in there about that. I just want, this is fantastic, I love this. I, I want to say as well, when I asked, I agree, it's important to be aware, and, and people may think, oh my God, that's scary, I don't want a journey anymore. And what, what came to me, the answer how to protect oneself is really primarily by your intent. Just open your heart and remember love. That's what she said to me that night, that challenging night. I said, how do I make sure this, you know, I don't get into these horribly dark, evil places. She said, just remember, just love. There's nothing else is real but love. And the moment I, I just felt so true, and I feel that's the protection. Remember your heart, remember love, remember you are pure consciousness, and you are love. And, and, and also, on top of that, it doesn't hurt to choose wisely, wisely who you sit with. Trust your intuition, right? I, I know you want to, can I just yeah. add one little thing to that first? Yeah, and, and uh, that was beautiful as far as I'm concerned. But also, one thing I learned from the ayahuasca world, the, the shamanism world in South America, is that the training that those people go through ideally takes years, and they have to start receiving the songs from spirit the Icaros. And I, I could tell you a long story that I won't because of the time, but I had a personal direct experience of that with a shaman or an ayahuasquero in Peru whose song changed my mind, changed my state of mind altogether. And I said, what was that? He said, well, those songs are spirits and they come to me and they say, now this is the time for this, for me, for, for, for this song, for you to sing this song for this person or for this group, right? So that is also really important. The Icaros and the songs that people do, and you, you guys probably know this because you lead a lot of ceremonies in the music that you use, I'm sure. But the people that are connected to the spirits through that can make a big change to these hellish experiences, you know? They Absolutely. can turn it around like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. We have two angels from our ceremonies here they know how how important it is that we when we see the darkness what we do and how we protect people and how we help them move that Hamza and Sonia are nodding here it's really important who you do this with absolutely yeah maybe just a note on the songs this is one of the reasons why certain indigenous cultures don't want their songs to be sung because they have a living relationship with the spirit of that song, and it comes in for a specific purpose. That purpose, that relationship has developed over time. <clears throat> so not every, not every indigenous culture has that approach, but many do, and that's one of the reasons why. This is a really great question, because this kind of goes into like metaphysical mm -hmm. territory, which I love. I'm enjoying it more <laughs> <now>. <laughs> One thing that I'll share that I've learned, and this has both been from teachings that I've received, 
different bodies of work, but also from my own direct experience. Beings or energies or forces, however you want to look at it, that are in service to love and light. One of, this is my own viewpoint. You don't need to take this on if, if it doesn't resonate with you. One of their primary directives is to never infringe upon your free will. They will not come in and remove an experience from you because there is a gift there that is revealed as you move through that. But they can help support you to move through that experience. And they will not come in unless you invite them in because they're going to honor your free will to experience things as you wish versus energies, beings, and forces who are not in service to love and light. They're the polarized opposite. They're seeking to usurp free will. They're looking to entrain you into their influence so that they can expand their influence to make you subservient to their will through very intelligent ways. So they will come in uninvited. <laughs> and so you can protect yourself by invoking containers, by asking for support, having clear intentions, being aware of who you're sitting with, being with facilitators who are aware of these different dynamics. But prayer, intention, these things are real. You know, calling in containers of protection and praying and asking for help and support, that is real. And if you start paying attention, you'll notice that you will receive certain responses. This is why prayer is so powerful. Prayer is an outpouring. Meditation is listening. And both of them work hand in hand. And as you start connecting to different, however you want to look at, the, at this, different aspects of yourself or guardian angels or spirit guides, however you want to frame this, you can invoke them. You can call them in. We have so much support around us in invisible spaces that can become tangible, that can become known, that you can build a relationship with if, if you direct your attention in that way. And the medical model doesn't really talk about this. They don't address this. They don't bring spirituality into the exploration of the healing potential of these substances. But even just looking at, there's a, a recent study with psilocybin for people who are in end-of-life care. The people who are most strongly affected by that experience would report a spiritual experience. The medical system doesn't know why that is. They're trying to figure it out. I was actually talking to some scientists here during another expansion seminar, and they didn't really know the answer to that, of actually scientifically investigating why does spiritual experiences, what people would identify as spiritual experiences, directly translate into healing transformation. They don't really know that. We're, we're just now starting to discover that for ourselves and as a culture. But if I was to leave you with one thing, in this whole territory, prayer, intention, calling in and welcoming support from beings who are in service to love and light has very real effects on your journey, as you, like what Stephen was saying, of opening up your field to be influenced by realms that we're not normally consciously aware of. And even if you don't believe any, any of that, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> by asking for some help, you know. A word that came to mind when you were talking was discernment. Because I was thinking, like, how can we tell? How do we know, you know, 
what's good and what's bad, calling in the good, for sure, but being discerning. One thing, and it's kind of interesting that my Oma was quite religious, but one thing she used to say to me, and it's a piece of advice that I think of often, she used to say, test the spirits. So, yeah, being discerning, something I relate to that. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for sharing all of the, you know, different risks that could happen or on how to navigate different spaces, whether they may be, per se, light or dark. I, I'm going to pass it over for a quick Q&A now, but I have one quick, fun, impromptu question. If it resonates with you, what's your spirit animal and why? <laughs> Since you mentioned yours, I was like, I have to ask. Well, you know, I told you about the jaguar, <laughs> and I love cats, so I suspect there's some cat energy. But I actually want to answer that question slightly longer. I used to go to a lot of Native American church peyote prayer ceremonies, and the man who ran a lot of those, they call them roadmen, he talked about the different spirit animals that he has working for him. He said, I have bear medicine, I have wolf medicine, I have eagle medicine. He said, I don't have any cats. So I, I think the point of that is that you can create a relationship with these totem animals or spirit animals. I don't know, I'm not an expert on it, how you do that, how do you nurture it, how you maintain it, but I feel pretty likely that, that we each have that potential, you know, to have a, a connection with supportive spirit animals. Well, since Deus is not here, do you want to say something about that? Sure, let me say something, okay. So I don't know if I have one spirit animal. I think I have a wildlife park. There are lots of different ones. I can tell you even much before I became spiritual. For example, one experience when we went somewhere on a tropical island swimming with dolphins. It was a group of about 35 to 50 people. And they brought us by this boat in the water. And we were, and then they, they, there were dolphins there, so we would be swimming with dolphins. You know what happened? I felt such love for them. All of a sudden, I felt so overwhelmed by enormous love for them. I had no idea where that came from. And they all came to me and surrounded me, all of them. And they were literally circle, circled me and didn't go anywhere else. And I thought, wow, they actually felt my love. This is, or maybe I felt their love. It, that's why I was overwhelmed by love. I had more experiences like that with beluga whale, with everything. So I thought, okay, that's my spirit animal. But then in the last year or two, and these two people who angel at our ceremonies often will confirm that, at least a few people when we hold group ceremonies tell me that they see me with blue feathers. And I experience that. I start, I feel like I'm flying. So there must be some bird as well, some blue bird, whatever that is. And that's all, I, I, I don't know, but I feel like presence often in ceremonies of wolves as well, as well, or wolf, Sonia knows that. So I, I don't know if we have one spirit animal, honestly, probably more. You know, whenever I think about this a lot, when people talk about their spirit animal, oftentimes it's like the eagle or the jaguar or the bear. And I'm like, why does nobody have like the platypus or like, you know, the vampire octopus at like 40,000 feet or whatever? I, I feel like I don't even know 
like 95% of the animals on the planet. But I have, I have a special relationship with a bunch of different animals and have had a lot of really beautiful experiences in ceremony and outside of ceremony that have helped build what I would call an allyship with them. They're teachers, guides, friends. They come in in different ways to serve in different ways. And so I wouldn't be able to isolate it down to a, a single animal. But I will say I have a special relationship with the Black Panther in particular. And I got a tattoo of the Black Panther on my shoulder blade when I was 18 in Thailand before I even had a relationship with that animal. And then it started coming through dreams and revealing a lot to me. So that is an animal that I'm particularly fond of and really grateful for, for what it shared with me. Very cool, we both have matching tattoos. I like this question. I don't know that I have a spirit animal, but I would say an animal that I identify with and have had an interesting relationship is a, a humpback whale. And the reason for that is I used to work at a fishing lodge in Haida Gwaii. I worked there for four years, and I remember one day being really green, really fresh on the water, not really knowing what I was doing, GPS broken down, terrible weather, and being totally lost in the water and having any experience with a humpback whale that just kind of like came and swam around my boat for half an hour and like, it was just really brought me a sense of peace. And, and then every summer I would go and like this thing would still be there and it was really interesting. And I learned actually last year when I went to Mexico to do Ibogaine, someone handed me this deck of, of cards and there were animals and talking about you know what these what these different animals represented and what they were associated with and i learned that the whale interestingly enough is associated with this idea of being the record keeper and that really yeah being a writer that really like stuck out to me i guess so for me it's the humpback whale i have it tattooed on my arm too <laughs> amazing thanks so much for for sharing all your stories okay everyone we're gonna do the q a now if we could just Take a deep breath together and recenter. Amazing. Hi. Can you hear me? Yep. Thank you so much, each and every one of you. And I'm just going to throw a bit of a wild question out there. And I feel like Deus kind of touched on this when you were talking about the, what was it, the Book of One? The Law of One. The Law of One, okay. What do you feel like, what do you think is like on the forefront of the spiritual evolution of the world right now? Like, you were talking about this idea of us moving towards collectively understanding that we're both unique and one. And I, I love that perspective of yours. I also just love to hear what you guys think is like sort of on the evolutionary apex right now, if that makes sense. Did you want to It's, it's, a, it's a challenging question. Deus has a very interesting perspective on it. I guess my perspective is well, I'd like to quote, reference Chris Beish on this one. He's one of the contributors to the my How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World book. And he has his own book, which is incredible, called LSD and the Mind of the Universe. And I'll try to keep this as short as possible, but it requires a bit of explanation to do justice to it. He, he's a retired professor of religion and philosophy from Ohio State University. And early in his career, he undertook what turned into a 20-year journey of 73 high-dose LSD sessions in the Stanislav Grof Protocol, which is safely at home or wherever with eye shades, hearing, or pardon me, music playlist on 
headphones and a sitter, and then you just go in. And where he went with that was he broke through the, the death of the personal ego and even the species ego and started to receive teachings from what he variously called things like the vast intelligences of the universe. And among all the other amazing things that happened in the later sort of third or so of that 20-year journey, he started to receive this message coming through and it kept getting stronger or more unequivocal or something like that, which was that we are as a species have come to a point after hundred, hundreds of thousands of years of development, of karmic development, and spiritual development and learning and everything like that, we have come to a point where we're entering sharply into what Chris calls a death and rebirth trajectory or cycle. We're, go we're at sort of the beginning of the death part of that, which requires the unraveling of the way things are done on multiple levels on this planet. And according to Chris, it is happening. There's no timeline involved. There's none of this 2012 stuff or anything, you know, but that it was essential it was inevitable. It's actually been prophesied and predicted by indigenous people from all over the planet. Mystics and psychonauts have experienced, have received this kind of download, and that we are heading toward what Chris calls eventually, we not meaning you know necessarily us in these incarnations, but the people of our species are heading toward the birth of what Chris calls the future human, which is essentially the awakened being that we are all naturally by, you know, that's our, that's our natural state. That's, what, that's why the word Buddha means awake, and it's our natural state. So we are heading toward that, ideally, possibly, and I think that's so important right now for us to understand, regardless of whether we understand anything about multiple dimensions, that's... I th I'm fascinated by all that stuff too, but I think, you know, sort of in the, on the pragmatic level, here and now, right now, in 2023, what you need to understand, what I need to understand, is that the gig is up, or the jig is up, right? And so, the Holy Spirit is right here. We just need to, you know, find out how to surrender and allow it, right? And that's what's gonna change the world. That's where we're going. And the likelihood is that material situations are likely to get a lot more challenging. And so part of that work is holding our seats, right? Holding our seats. You know, there was this wonderful old poem. I don't remember most of it, but it was by a guy named Rudyard Kipling. <laughs> it was like, if, you know, and one of the lines in it was, you know, if you can, basically something like, if you can keep your wits about you while everybody around you is losing theirs, you know, then, you know, you'll be what indigenous people often call a real person, right? So that's the task that I personally would put before anyone in this room and myself, which is let's stay, let's get real, let's be real, let's hold our seats as things become potentially more challenging on the material level because the spirit is nigh. I agree. I, I feel like, hmm, this could go in a lot of different directions. Got to reel myself in here. I am under the impression that the vast majority of humanity has been hijacked. We have been specifically programmed by forces that do not have our highest well-being in mind because they understand the power and the potential of the human and how to program them. 
through a combination of psychological and emotional and energetic influence, specifically during developmental phases, that then create very predictable behaviors and ways of responding to circumstance and situation. I mean, our whole education system is not designed to liberate the creative, authentic human. It's designed to create productive workers that fit into a particular system with ease. So I think the process that we're in right now is the reclamation of who and what we really are, which is partially an unraveling process. All the things that have been installed within us, either through the socioeconomic and geopolitical structures that we're in right now, or through the karmic influence of family or past lives or however it is that you want to look at that, we have to un resolve the unprocessed material from the past, which is a painful kind of process, which disrupts our sense of self. It reorients our worldview in a potentially challenging way. But through that, we get to reclaim our freedom and our sovereignty, and it actually opens us up to, like I've been saying, a way of relating to one another in a more authentic, genuine way. And we also get to liberate the true power that we have as co-creators in this reality by harnessing the energy and the power and the focus, the willingness and the capacity to actually generate reality, which is partially why it's so powerful if humanity is enslaved into and entrained into a particular direction because we are creators. And so if we are creating through the imprint of unconscious patterning, that's gonna reinforce the systems that perpetuate our enslavement. So to reclaim that power and to generate reality through our own volition is the breaking free of that enslavement. I think that's what we're moving towards. Gabo? Where's Gabo? Power! <laughs> All right. I love what you both said, and I personally agree. And I'm going to... I, I suppose I'm going to let the psychologist in me speak a little bit. In psychology, well, in biology, they say ontogenesis is a recapitulation of phylogenesis, which means a development of an individual is a repetition of a development of species. And I'm thinking in terms of, so making a comparison where we are at now as species with the development of a child, of a human, of an individual. And I think right now we are about adolescence. Why? Because, you know, a child comes to this world, well, there's much more to that, but I think the child comes with lots of, lots of memory that gets erased for various reasons. I'm not gonna go into that, we could stay here forever. And then the child starts learning who they are and then about when they reach about adolescent period, they start rebelling against everything they've been taught. And that rebellion is really crucial. And that's where we are now. I see a species, we are rebelling. And that's good, that's important. But why is it important? It's an important developmental stage to rebel against what I'm not in order to find what I am. So we have to rebel first, most of us do, in order to find what we actually are. But also remember, if we stay in the rebellion phase, we are still rebelling against, and we are still not 
discovering or embodying what we are. And that's a very important next stage. And so I'm going to just echo what's been said here and many times, especially by you, I think there's how do we do that? It's all about getting to know ourselves. These medicines, they help us deconstruct our ego and transcend the self. But you can't transcend the self unless you know the self. Otherwise, you'll become psychotic. And that's actually quite a serious danger of using psychedelics. Unless you have a certain ego developed, I would not recommend it, you know? So it's about discovering the truth, not just the out there, but the truth inside of who you are and facing yourself with total raw honesty and accountability and owning everything that you are and that you're not. And you know what? Not try, it's about, for me, it's not about trying to disown what you don't like in yourself. It's about learning how to love that too. As my husband, Ivan, says, can you love your shit too? And that's how we transform and, and move on to the next stage, out of the rebellion stage. That's, that's at least how I see it. Thanks, Carl Jung. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Individuation, anyone? <laughs> yes, separation, um, individuation, yeah. and then transcendence. Yeah. yeah. Talked, Jung talked about individuation process going up to about age 30, and then you start undoing that. And, you have to have that, and now it's probably more up to age said. of 50. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway. All right. Hi, I, I also have a question. I'd like to expand and also go a little more specific from Jonathan's question. So we realize that we're all who we actually are at core are not the narratives that we're taught or we like all the protectors that we build through our lives dealing with our past traumas. And we all realize that we have this higher potential to be at the collective level in the society, and we all gather today because we woke up to that level and we realized that to a certain level. My question is, how do we bring that knowledge and then integrate and then live in the world, especially the world, the outer communities that have not yet realized this, and particularly our beloved family that might not agree with this or have not yet realized about this. And so how do we approach this in a way that they will perceive rather than reject? I'll just say one sentence to you. What's your name? Ping. Ping? Ping. Like Ping okay. Pong. Ping. So this is how I see it, you know? When you truly do all of this work, and as you said, you, you get to know who you truly are, truly are at your essence, which is love and pure consciousness. You go there back to your loved ones. You don't need to convince them of anything. You just love the shit out of them, and they can't resist that. That's the best thing you can do, in my opinion. Definitely echoing that. Just but, you know, I've, this is something I've experienced firsthand, having religious parents. The one thing I want more than anything is to be able to smoke a joint with my mom and dad, but they're so against it, right? And I've recognized that asking them that question every time I see them isn't going to do anything. But if I, you know, like you said, you know, show up in love, love them and, and 
and embrace them regardless of how they feel about this plant that I would love to <laughs> introduce them to. That's one way for sure, one thing that's really crucial to that. But another thing I think that is so cr critical to, you know, you mentioned like gaining this knowledge and, and having this understanding and, and being on that sort of spiritual side. One thing that helps me sort of ground that is being embodied, being in my body, spending a lot of time, you know, away from that sort of, I don't know, the zone that I'm in when I'm working, quote unquote. And so like, yeah, I think those practices can look different for different people. We talked about meditating and breathwork and things like that. But for me, the practice of embodiment is a lot more physical. I like to do jujitsu and, you know, like martial arts or whatever. And I think that that's really uh, using some sort of embodied practice to really ground in the, the knowledge and the insight that you gain when you are having a psychedelic experience or, or really any sort of spiritual experience. As Deus was saying, you know, life is a spiritual experience. So yeah, I think that has been a really criti critical part of my own practice is grounding those practices within my body and being able to feel them rather than just, you know, speak to them and, and write to them, yeah. I'm going to riff off what you said a little bit, you know. There's a, there's a phrase, I believe it originates from William Blake a couple of hundred years ago, who said it's, it's called follow the golden thread. So it's one, it's one way of thinking about it, but if that doesn't make complete sense, another way of describing it is, I said I used to go to a lot of Native American church peyote prayer ceremonies, and the roadman, Ken Littlefish, at least once that I can remember, but probably more than once, said, Relatives, stay behind the medicine. And that's both literal and metaphorical, because another way of saying it is let go and let God. So that stay behind the medicine is like, don't put your kind of like conceptual ego mind thinking in front of the natural golden thread, the pathway of the golden thread. So as we pay more attention to that stuff, and the more we do our own relaxing, opening, healing work, the more that we can just you know, follow the golden thread and, you know, that will take us where we need to go day by day, right? So that it is about, and I think this is, I gather this is what you're implying in your question, is like how do we take that from our own healing to, you know, benefiting the world? I think it's like don't overthink it, right? Just like trust that as your heart awakens, that will guide you, which is essentially what Lana said, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, kind of. Okay, kind of. Yeah, yeah. So the, we 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 all have our own way of being in this world, right? Our, our own things that we're good at, and and that are, you know, as Joseph Campbell said, are follow your bliss. You know, the things that get you excited. And if we just pay attention to those, and then like that's our way. You know, like it could be, it could just be walking around smiling at everybody if it's coming from here, right? Or you know what I mean? It could be just like being kind to the person in the store, or it could be writing, or it could be music, or it could be organizing, it could be anything, what's natural to you, as long as we have that, as Deus said earlier, prayer, in a sense, in our mind, right? Like the prayer is for the healing of the world, you know? Mm. You know, anyway, that's enough. <laughs> Can I just add Thank something you. to what I... Yes, you have okay. Thank you. Because it's kind of, you, 
you kind of interpreted what I said, and you're correct, you're right. But I also realized I didn't quite finish what I was saying, because my understanding was that your question was about how do you go to your loved ones and explain and bring them into this world, right? And also the society. And the society. And that's why I said go and love the shit out of them. Because I remember one man who came to our ceremony, and he was, he was raised in a very dogmatic Catholic family. And he told us in the opening circle and later in the integration that he used to be very uh, angry, aggressive, like edgy, mean. And afterwards, a couple of weeks later in the Zoom integration, he was just saying how beautifully peaceful and soft and loving and present he is. And he said, but how do I ex explain this to my wife, who, would st who is still very religious, very Catholic, would not accept this? And that's what we said. We said, don't explain anything. Has she not noticed how you changed? I mean, you love her, and you love yourself, and you love the world, and she will notice the change. And that will hopefully intrigue her to want to do some work on herself and if it doesn't it doesn't but you can't really force it onto people that's what i noticed we my husband and i try to push our son to do this work and and he at some point has said mom dad stop pushing psychedelics on me and we're like okay this is a weird sentence right <laughs> i know the times have changed right and and then we finally realized you don't do that you don't do that. Let them see your transformation and, and hopefully they'll catch on when they are ready, if they are ready. Right? Thank you. I think just very briefly, <clears throat> this has been the major lesson for me, one of the major lessons for me in my life. The prime directive, never infringe on the free will of other people. If you're trying to propagate your own understanding, your own belief system, your own perspective, your own ideas, your own preferences onto other people, you're infringing upon their free will. We don't know how other people have arrived at the place that they're at or why the experiences or perspectives or belief systems that they have will be beneficial in the evolution of the expression of their soul. We don't know that. So the greatest power that we have is to embody and to emanate who and what we really are, which is with as much authenticity and love as possible. So if you're being triggered or challenged by another person, use that as fuel to dive in and figure out how to enter into right relationship with that being from an elevated place, because that's within the sphere of your influence. That's how they're going to be affected, rather than trying to convert anyone into any particular perspective. Let's give it up for, to our panelists. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, your resources, your wisdom, and thank you all for your questions. 
To wrap things up tonight, if you aren't familiar with Flying Sage, that's how we've all gathered here today. We have events like the Seminar Monthly. We also have Michael's the co-founder. I'm an attendee and it's changed my life. It has so much to offer. I've attended sessions like Breathwork or the Dips on Wednesday morning. So if you're not already a member, you can check out how to become a part of the community. And of course, follow our panelists tonight. If anything resonated with you, follow up with them. I'm sure they would love to hear from you. And, and also, lastly, we have the Spirit Plant Medicine Conference that, that we have in, you have in November. Did you want to say? Yeah. So that's all about this stuff, and it's all with this mission and prayer in mind. Is this one on still? Oh, yeah. Okay. And just so you know, if you buy a ticket to the conference before the end of June, and you use the discount code that's on these little flyers, there's a bunch back there, you get 50% off until the end of June, and then that code will give you an, a further 11% off. After the end of June, there'll be other prices that are not the eventual full price, and you get 11% off those too. So I'd love to see you folks there. This is the 12th year of the conference. We get many of the leading spokespeople, visionaries in this field with a wide diversity of voices, BIPOC, indigenous, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all about how psychedelics can help us and what the overall prayer and vision is. Okay, so I hope I'll see you there. <laughs> May I say something? Yes, quickly. I just, is it on? Is this one? This one is on. I want to also add that we at Intronaut host free monthly Zoom integration sessions. So if you guys have journeyed by yourself with anyone else, you're always welcome to join every month, and that's free, and you can ask any questions, you can get help. We are also, Ivan and I, hosting or facilitating integration session through Flying Sage in July as well at Numinous. So I just wanted you to know that resource is also available at any time. Maybe I'll just share how to stay connected with me. So I facilitate with my partner, Aga, for a lot of the things that we do. I also do one-on-one -on -one sessions, including breathwork, medicine journeys. I have a master class for men, which is an eight-week program. And then we also have a whole bunch of other stuff that we do periodically, like song circles, ecstatic dance. I just finished a four-week series on coming back to life, which was art processes, embodiment practices, and play and games and things like that. So all of that, you can find out more info if you go to thesomaheart.com, and that has different ways to reach out and get in contact with us. Hi, really quickly, buy my book. I would love to chat with you if you have any questions. And this is like super on the DL. I actually have never even talked about this in public yet, but I recently completed some education and coursework around helping people on the integration side of things. So if, you've, if you're looking for someone to chat with one-on-one -on -one in a really casual but supportive way on a psychedelic experience that you've been through, you can come chat with me if you want to, but there's some, some great folks up here who's also, who have also got some great things on offer. I would love to also see you guys at the Spirit Plant Medicine Conference, which, yeah. Anyway, thanks, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> awesome, thank you.
Okay, and lastly, let's give it up for Nemesis for hosting and having us in the And we also have Moments Mushrooms and Flying Sage merch in the back. There's some pretty cool designs you can check out. And socialize, chat, and hope to see you next month.